You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Hello and welcome to the Enormo Cast. This is your host, Chris. Hey. Hey, dude, it's me. Wait, what the? It's your midlayer, bro. <laughs> Ooh, thanks. Little dank in here. Wait, who the hell are you? I'm your midlayer. The layer between your base layer and your shell. It's the most important layer of layers, in my fleecy opinion. Anyway, what are you doing? I'm making a podcast in my cold basement. <laughs> what, is your mom going to get mad if you turn up the heat, Mr. Podcaster? Yeah, hilarious. It may be a basement, but at least it's my basement. Anyway, I'm kind of busy. What do you want? Well, I just wanted to tell everybody about the mid-layer, man. The mid-layer is the most useful layer in your closet, bro. Perfect for exercise, climbing rock or ice on dry, chilly days. Of course, keeping you warm and cozy under your shell, or just hanging around. Well, you do get a lot of wear in my life. That's because I know I'm your favorite, bro. I'm a black diamond coefficient hoodie. Warm, great movement, slim fit under your puffier shell, and I make you look like a fine figure of a man. Or maybe the captain of a starship, I can't tell which. But I do make a stylish scene at any occasion, or at least any occasion you'd want to go to. That's pretty true. But check this out. Black Diamond has a whole line of coefficient fleece. Full zip, quarter zip, pullover, LT quarter zip, LT vest, or some other mumbo jumbo. It's all there at blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop, bro. Coefficient fleece is like wearing actual sunshine on the bleakest of days, my dog. Do people actually go to stores anymore? They should. A good climbing shop is the soul of sport. Anyway, you should get back to work. The people want their spray. Well, thanks for stopping by, bro. You know I do love my coefficient hoodie from Black Diamond. Love you too, man. How about a hug? Bring it in, bro. Consider the Belair. Steadfast and sure-footed, the Belair is a breed apart. Often taken for granted, the Belair literally saves your life every single time you punt. And let's face it, that's a lot of disasters averted. Loyal and smart, whether it's the first time you've said take or the 100th. The belayer sits back and holds you right where you want to be while you brush that hold one more time. Even though both you and your trusty belayer know it ain't going to change a goddamn thing. The belayer just smiles and says, Dude, you totally got it next time. Even though there's no way on God's green earth you will in fact get it next time. So maybe it's time to honor the unsung hero of your journey with a fine gift from Peter W. Gilroy. Peter, a blayer himself, knows what a trinket or a sweet splitter hat, the ones with the mountain-inspired titanium badges, will do for a worn-out blayer spirit when you've been riding them hard. Artful jewelry and accessories can be found at PeterWGilroy.com for your blayer or any partner you've been forgetting to appreciate during that singular haze of the next burn. So consider your blayer and PeterWGilroy.com. One day you might look down and they'll be gone eating that sandwich they've been thinking about since you took on the second bolt an hour ago. And don't forget to enter Enormo at checkout for a discount and to help this darn podcast. That's PeterWGilroy.com. Enter Enormo at checkout. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. Really the hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out.
weather. Bad weather. No, later. Anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is May 1st. 2023, about 9.30 a.m., and this is episode 262 of the Enormal Cast, a conversation with climber, guide, human, Carolyn George. And Carolyn George is one of the most accomplished climbers you've probably never heard of. She is crack ice climber, awesome skier, solid rock climber, mountaineer, got the full value with Carolyn George, and she's also an IFMGA guide. Um, one of the early females to get that full certification, that full international certification, the IFMGA. You know, it's fun to climb with an IFMGA guide, an IFMGA guide. You can get yourself clean and have a good meal. You can do anything you feel with an IFMGA guide. And in some ways, Carolyn's life seems like a pretty good blueprint if you want to both be a professional in the mountains and recreate in the mountains, live in the mountains which I think a lot of up-and-coming climbers dream about. But, of course, it's not without its complications. And as usual, that's what this podcast is really about. And actually, Carolyn's been met with a lot of bumps and hurdles due to her gender. As a woman in that industry early on, there weren't many of them. Still aren't, actually. We talk about that. But also a lot of historical resistance to uh, professional guides being women over the last few decades. And then also... Carolyn decided to have a family and be a professional guide and be a climber, which, as we all know, complicates everything. I've actually kind of known Carolyn very casually, very casually, more followed her a little bit uh, for decades, really. Pretty sure we met in the desert. Not exactly sure, but I know her husband a little bit better, Adam, who I know I met in the desert years and years and years ago. So it was really great to catch up with her. And I've always sort of admired Carolyn and Adam from a distance, for making this life in the mountains that they have, having a family, kind of representing the pinnacle of professionalism in a place like the Swiss and French Alps and guiding internationally. Seems like they're living the dream. In most days, they'd probably agree with me. Connected with Carolyn all the way to Switzerland. So listen carefully, because she has a unique perspective and a lot to say. The high-flying monsters of Sportiva Rock Shoe lineup return this weekend to your local crag for the Enormacast Back to Spring Monster Sending Season. Come see the La Sportiva Solution lead the charge as the greatest sport climbing and bouldering beast of all time. Or watch as the 10,000 horsepower Testarossa burns down your project. The new and improved Katana Lace-Up will blow your mind and don't be fooled by the dainty Sportiva mantra. It's smearing and grabbing power plays rough with those Jim Holtz. Come for the leather, but stay for the midfield halftime show of the new Squama Vegan, all the heft without the harm. Sportiva has it all, from jamming to smearing to edging to hooking. 
This Sunday and every Sunday from here to eternity. Get your feet in any of these fueled up high octane climbing shoes at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. And crush your project! <coughs> Sportiva.com Yeah, I have this huge set of cliff notes from your email, actually. <laughs> so like, I'm a little too like, opinionated. <laughs> I have a lot of opinions. But let's clear up the the nationality issue. Like, you've, you've got this multi-border... Uh, multi-country background so you're u.s and you're french and you're swiss and all these things yeah it's a little tricky yeah um so i was born in switzerland and i did all my schooling here and then i moved to the states i went to the u.s festival and i dropped my ice axes on my husband-to-be adam <laughs> <laughs> climbing in ice hose i was at the top and i didn't clipped the tools properly to my harness and they went flying down the climb and he had started climbing. So that's kind of how we met. And um, then we saw each other again in Canada and then very quickly thereafter we got married. So anyway, so that was really great because I'd always had these three passports. My dad is American. My mom was French. She passed away now. And I was able to live in the States. I didn't have to come back because I had that passport. Up until then, I thought, you know, it was just kind of trivial to have three passports, but uh, it, it came down really heavy throughout my life course. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So, I mean, we got to elaborate on this story. So, you know, <laughs> these ice axes come whizzing past him. I hope they didn't hit him. Pretty close. But, yeah. <laughs> it was he... a sign, right? <laughs> Did, and I, I mean, so... I, like fill the story in so he's not pissed or he is but then he meets you and and you call him the savage beast like how did that go no 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 so i was i just helped have the climb with this guy michael gilbert i don't know if you remember oh, sure. him yeah, yeah yeah so i was climbing with michael i was staying at vince anderson's house uh so he connected me to michael and then dropped my tools they were like these old uh nomics and i had shot the head off like the, the hammer off but there's nowhere to clip them and I put a sling around them and didn't clip the two ends of the sling. And so they just went flying down. And Adam had started at the, on the first pitch. So he just saw these tools flying down. And um, Michael came down to him. And, he, and um, yeah, Adam was pretty pissed. And then he saw me wrap down and he was like, hey, you're a road chick here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was pretty much that. And then he, you know, I was competing in the ice fest. He was belaying, but I didn't really see him. Uh, and then I was in Canada on a bigger ice climbing trip. Uh, I was there for like six weeks. And um, Vince has Vince Anderson has his birthday party March 10th and mine is March 16th. So we did a joint birthday party and Adam was there and he's like, oh, aren't you the girl who dropped those tools on me? And I was like, oh, what are the odds of that happening twice, right? So right. <laughs> that was that. Um, and, uh, we went and did an ice climb together a couple of days later. And then he asked me to meet, meet up with him in the desert. Yeah. And that was kind of funny because I was in the desert and he was like, Oh, I'll just find you in Moab in, in Indian Creek. Um, I'll just find you somewhere. And I see all the, it's dark and I see all these trucks driving by. And then I see this massive truck. I can't remember the name of it, like a Dodge massive. <laughs> and I was like, Oh God, I hope it's not him. You know, in Europe, we have small cars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know what they say about big cars. 
Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, there's some compensation <laughs> issues. Is that what you're getting at? <laughs> so he sold the car shortly thereafter. All right. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then we got married like pretty much. Um, yeah, we were together six months. But out of the six months, I was gone three months. So we got married like after three months, pretty much. Wow. And that 17 was. 17 years uh, in. How many? 17. Oh, right. 2006, yeah. yeah. 17, yeah. a child. Yeah. A child, a business that you run together. Yeah, I mean, you know, like in Europe, you don't really run like you can have a guiding business, but right. really, you just independent workers. We just have a okay. joint website, basically. Okay. But we, it's great because since we have the same job, we come home and we can share conditions and and debrief and be each other's kind of counselor about our experience of the day. Um. We don't do that like intentionally, but just by talking things through, it's less isolating because guiding in, in Europe is very individualistic, kind of everybody for themselves, or at least where I live. Um, so I think it's like a really uh, solid resource for me to be able to communicate at night together about conditions and decision making and stuff like that. Awesome. Yeah, I met I met Adam back in the day back uh, I think in the desert is how I met him. Um actually yep. and then and then you guys just disappeared. Um <laughs> Yeah, totally. He he actually says hi. He just uh, came oh, cool. in through the door. He's like, "Make sure to say hi." Um oh, yeah, and I think I saw you you were doing um at a concert. Maybe it was Halloween in Moab. There you guys you were doing a concert with Lisa and I think yeah, that's yeah. where Sparkle I met Motion. You. Exactly. Uh, Sparkle motion. Oh, that was so good. Yeah, the Lisa's disco band. outfits were all time. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Are you still I doing that? Uh, no, no, that band's long gone. That was a long time ago. I, I'm still super close with Lisa, though, So, and we play oh, music cool. together now and again. Um, that was hard, too, because I didn't live there. I didn't live in Moab, so... But yeah, I think I yeah, Andreas was there, I think. Yeah, this like you guys were all out um, for the yeah. night, so... Yeah, yeah that was an fun. awesome... Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember I banged my head on a on a glass and I opened my head like laughing. Really? I just hit it like that and split my head open. I mean, that's kind of. <laughs> oh man! Oh, that was funny. That was like with Evan and Jasmine, but it was in Moab, and I think it was a similar time. So if it was Anyways. in the bar, I th- think it was. Is you're lucky you didn't get some sort of tetanus infection from? Yeah, the right. Exactly. That is, exactly. That place now it must not... be all sophisticated yeah. over there in Moab. <laughs> Yeah, those were cool days. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So let's go back a little ways then. Um, you grew up in Switzerland and uh, learned to climb early on, it sounds like. Yeah, my parents were climbers, so we did that. I didn't like it at all. Yeah. I actually hated it. You know, like one of those things when your parents forced It's not that they were forcing me, but, you know, mm-hmm. they had an intention. And I think as a child, you tried to shape yourself against your parents first. And then later in your teenage years, you try to individualize yourself to society. And so you take all these things that make you more individualistic. And um, I think that that was kind of a, a huge identity phase for me to go to the mountains on my own, away from my parents to kind of make mm-hmm. it my own thing. Uh, later, we did more stuff together. But in those days, it was like really formative of a community for me. And I think that was the leading force um, and still is, well, maybe not the, the leading force of, um, of my passion for the mountains was also right. the sense of community. Yeah. What did it look like for you to go off on your own and find climbing? What, how, how did that happen? Uh, I mean, I lived in, um, 
in a mountain village that had a lot of international schools in. Okay. And so pretty much and there's a lot of international teachers that came to work in that village and uh, they were all mostly climbers. So I got to meet some of them and we went climbing together and, you know, one thing led to another. And then also, um, I think as a woman, a lot of the time you start climbing through, you go to the mountains through your partnership with, with the men mm-hmm. because, you know, like the mountains are still very male dominated. And so I think a lot of, it's also kind of a, you know, a bit of a hierarchy where the guy is going to take his girlfriend to the mountains and show her around. And so there was, there was some of that for me as well, for sure, uh, in the early days. And actually, it all happened quite quickly. I mean, I did a lot of like ski bumming seasons in Verbier or in Chamonix. And then I just met this guy who was doing ice climbing competitions and there was no women doing it. So they asked me to enter. And I was like, oh. Uh, yeah, I mean, I sucked completely, but I was like really taken and it and it always stuck with me. And so that was kind of my start into becoming more independent in the mountains. And because I didn't know that many people who were mountaineering, I just started taking people. And so um, I just kind of learned on the go on my own right. without courses or anything, which is amazing. I didn't die. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's such a common <laughs> refrain in this podcast, for sure. When I'm talking to people about learning to, to climb, that's always some some version of that comes out of like, yeah, well, it's, it's amazing we didn't die or we probably almost did or um, things like that. But but um, when when did it uh, when did it sort of look like a horizon of a career, either guiding or as a professional climber? I mean, with the ice climbing competitions, there are so few women that we pretty much all the women who took part got sponsorships. So in a way that was like an easy in. And so right. I think it's really, and you know, we always say, ah, there's so few women in the mountains, blah, blah, blah. We're such, there's a bit of a discourse about victim, victimization, you know, that we don't have as much access, but we have a lot more opportunities too, because we're more in the spotlight because of our uniqueness. So there is some of that. And that was a huge advantage for me, for sure. And so I had my foot in the door with that. And then I was in law school at the time. And then I was going to go down the whole lawyer road. And I just remember going up for my lawyer internship interview and um, being accepted for, for the job and leaving the office and crossing this road and just having this knot in my stomach. And I think a lot of the time in life, like we have these physical signs that we feel, but we don't understand what they mean. I mean, many years in now, I still don't know what they all mean, but I just remember that one distinctly, that something would go wrong or like it was not that it was the wrong decision, but it was like a turning point, you know, and I remember exactly crossing this uh, crosswalk. And having this nut in my stomach. And life took a turn for the worse. After that, I mean, I was doing my lawyer internship. I was so passionate in the, the mountains. I would go um, sleep in huts at nights, you know, come back down to work. Um, I mean, everything was dedicated to that. And but then I, I met somebody and things went really wrong. And he ended up uh, taking his life. So, so that... I just remember really this moment of that feeling and I know that that feeling was a sign of what was to come and how my life mm. would change. From that day on, it was very clear to me that I just needed to 
stick to to my passion also for survival at that at that moment it was like i just need to do everything that's going to make me survive this moment so he takes his own life and then you like did does that mean you quit your job and left the country what what did what what did surviving look like um it it was a bit of um it was a bit of a crescendo it it didn't I, it didn't just happen and i just sure. like left you know i think a lot of the events in life are like these individual ingredients that come together at some point to make something and so the experience that you feel in the moment is only a fraction of what it will become eventually and for for that it was definitely what it was like it just just kind of like this bomb and then you wait for the dust to settle i had booked a flight to go to canada to go ice climbing so i went and i just like kind of removed myself from that and then went back to europe and it series of other events happened which eventually made it clear exactly a year in that i just needed to leave to to take care of myself and the day i made that decision within like a week i had sold all my furniture all my stuff and i left to the states for with just a bag on my backpack and i had met this woman who had said you need to go across the pond and when you go across the pond you'll meet this person you'll share your life with and it did happen exactly like that really? <laughs> Yeah, because that's that's when I met that's when I met Adam. So sure, yeah, Mm. yeah. So suddenly that passport, like he looked at it, and you were like, "I'm going to go climb in the states," and then Canada. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Yeah. and um, I just, you know, I just like flew there, stayed with some friends of my parents. Um, This guy Ted Wilson from Salt Lake, who used to be a climber in the Tetons, and then the mayor of Salt Lake. After that, Um, then I stayed with friends in, in Salt Lake, and life just unfolded in that way that I just stayed there and made a life there for a while with Adam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, one of the things you mentioned to me, um, and I actually saw online is, uh, talking about reading Katie's book, uh, Katie Brown's book, and she's been on the show. And, you know, as soon as someone says Switzerland to, to me as a climber, I was, I'm like, Oh, paradise. Like you, you grew up in like, you know, Heidi's backyard or whatever. And there are mountains everywhere and you're t- learn to climb from your parents. And, but then the more I've kind of looked at details of your life and even this conversation we just had, it's like you, you know, it was a, it was still like any girl's upbringing. It's pressurized with all these different things and different ways in which you're being, push to do one thing and wanting to do different things. And, and, uh, but it, it, so it sounds, so it sounds like it wasn't necessarily idyllic in any way, but what did you, um, identify with when, when you were reading Katie's recent book and knowing what you know about Katie's story, probably previously, I mean, you're from a generation that would have been a little bit privy to Katie's, to Katie's story. So what, what resonated with you with her? I just knew Katie's story through like magazines and stuff but then it was all magazines and I remember my first trip to Yosemite there was like this little kiosk right before the gate on the left there and um there was a a climbing magazine and it was like Beth and Tommy's wedding and there was a photo with Katie she was like holding the dress and like she was standing behind Beth in the bathroom and stuff and it was like oh there there she's back on some level you know and uh you know, I mean, uh, there's just few people who um, who come and go. There's like a mystery around it. I'm really t- uh, close friends with Leave, who she talks about quite a bit in the book as well. 
as a competitor and uh, somebody that she felt was going through, through similar stuff. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's really cool to, I mean, it's really fascinating to go um, back in time and see what's going on through somebody's head. For me, what resonated, I, I think, like I said in that Instagram post, is that as parents, we hold so much authority and power over our children. And we were never taught that we need to have incredible critical thinking about what we're imparting to our children, how it's going to impact them. Um, and I think I grew up with that kind of narrative that, you know, keep it all to yourself, like what happens in the family, uh, also body image, uh, you had to be thin to be loved, you had to be this, you know, as a woman, you had to be not take up too much space and um, all these things that we're told to be, to be accepted by society. I think we're born one person and we're molded to be what society expects us to, to be. And I think society has a big back. We're, we're educated to become what um, our parents want us to be through what they've experienced in their lives. So it's just like this massive background of generations, baggage. And um, I think with that critical thinking, we will keep imparting these mistakes or these things that, you know, have impacted us and we think they're, they're valid. So, yeah, I think a lot of critical thinking is really important. And I think also, I mean, she had an eating disorder. I, I also suffered from that as a child and also into adulthood. And, um, and it is one of the most deadly mental disease in the world. I think it's the second one. And so it's really fascinating to see other people going through that. And I think we live in such a rich time because there is so much sharing and there is so much um, normalizing of these narratives of what people struggle with. And I think it's very prevalent. And because we never talk about it, uh, or until now, it's never really been talked about. I think it's uh, perpetuated the problem because we have this image that climbers or alpinists are so tough and so this and have to be, you know, like in the guide course, you're taught that the guide is never cold, never hungry, never thirsty, doesn't have emotions, isn't at the top. I think that's the essence of um, people struggling in life. And by opening up and sharing these narratives, we're making it easier for other people to open up and share these narratives. And I think that's like so rich and so courageous beyond any climb you can do. Was your disordered eating connected to climbing? Not at all. No? And I've seen a lot of narrative about that. Um, I think Hazel posted something about eating disorder within climbing and stuff. And I'm like, what is the root cause? It's not just climbing. There's something deeper to for the tree to be shaken. And so where does it come from? You know, like I think for me, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure some of it was linked to hormones. And I don't think we talk about that a lot. I think a lot of girls have eating disorders when they um, come into teenage years. Some of it is body image, but I think hormones are very prevalent and we don't because there is no money to make with eating disorders. There's very little research that goes into it. So there's very little known about it as well. And um, I think that's one factor. The other factor that's really strong is societal narrative because um, we grew up in this, I mean, we still do in this, you know, all the more now with Instagram, 
with like influencers, like the bimbo style of like these women, you know, like in their uh, bikinis in the snow and, you know, all, all these fake images that have been portrayed throughout the years, you know, like Elle magazine or Vogue, whatever. They're all responsible of perpetuating this image of women as an object. And I think it's very um, debilitating. Like it takes away the ability to, uh, the authority of who you can be. Because I think in humans, Brené Brown talks about the nuance between fitting in and belonging. And I really think in there is like the essence of all issues in the world. Because fitting in is when you have to make an effort to be someone someone else so people accept you and belonging is the essence of you being accepted and i think in that nuance there's so much power and in the power of trying to fit in is where disorders happen and if you belong and you feel safe in your space in your community then you can be who you are and i think that's a really powerful thing that we all feel within communities whether it's the climbing community or any community that you have, family or workspace or whatever. You know, as a person that was coming into ice climbing competitions, you said that, you know, you were invited because you were a woman and they, they wanted that kind of representation and there was just a few of you. And, and so, I mean, you know, I'm not going to go as far as to say pioneer, but you were there, you know, early on. And it's interesting to me because like, you know, we, we look at early women climbers, Lynn Hill. I mean, not that there weren't other, but, you know, she was like the greatest of all time. And, uh, you know, such this maverick. And, and you think of her as like breaking these chains, right? And, and you know, t- what society was telling her to do, she went like a thousand percent the other direction. And climbing was this conduit for her to become, you know, this very special person and show women what they could do. But what have you, you know, run into in terms of like, you break free from that world and you're saying, I'm a woman, but I can go ice climbing and I can do all these things that regular society says you're not really supposed to do, you know? But then I'm, you know, more and more we talk about it. It's like we run into these within climbing itself, this, this place that's supposed to be your conduit to be free from those ideas. We run into more of them. Um, climbing puts women into different types of other boxes. And you are also an early IF, what is it? IF, AMGA. IFMGA. Yeah. yeah. You know, you were. <laughs> That's like straight not, out of a movie. Yeah. IF, um, I, I, yeah, IFMGA. Yeah. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, I, it is. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Okay. This is an acronym, you know. Um, so you're in the guiding world, which is also a place where, you know, they want to put. Uh, the genders in boxes and give them work that's specific to them and all that sort of thing. So what have you encountered, you know, as again, as you sort of opened your wings as a climber, then maybe was the community clipping them at all or, or uh, running into those kind of problems? Yeah, I think early on, I think like, I I think through the ice climbing competitions, like very quickly, I was really fascinated to go to the mountains and explore like all these things that you dread about, like uh, climbing north faces and uh, doing big ice climbs and doing these ridges and, you know, um, and traveling to go climb mountains and stuff. And when, like in 2003, I just bumped into this guy on a climb. And I was like, oh, I think the north face of the Eiger is in condition. It's like, all right, let's go tomorrow. 
And so it was kind of a bit of a whirlwind. Like the next day we're like driving over there and the whole time I'm like, I'm going to tell him at the train station I'm not going. I'll tell him at the hotel I'm not going. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll tell him at the base I'm not going. And then you just like there on your first, first ever bivy in the middle of the north base of the Eiger. And these things just kind of, just kind of happened, you know, and, um, and then like a week later, I was climbing the north face of the Matterhorn. Then I was like, I'm going to climb all the classic north faces in the Alps and <clears throat> which I did. And I did it two of them twice, one of them as an off mile party. And yeah, I mean, these things just kind of happened. And I was like, really psyched to just do it as a human. And right after I did some of these north faces, some guys came to me and were like, why are you competing with men? And it was such a shock to the system that I was now in hindsight, like, uh, I mean, that was like 2003, that's been 20 years. In hindsight, now that I know, and I've like developed critical thinking of, uh, around that, I'm just like, wow, it's crazy to think that. I mean, at the time I was like, oh, well, I didn't realize, sorry, I'm invading. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even mean to invade, like, sorry, I stepped. Uh, but now in hindsight, I'm like, oh, wow, that's um, that's crazy how this guy could think that me climbing this north face uh, was defined by his gender, that it belonged to his gender to climb these things. And that if I was doing that, therefore I was competing. And I was like, what am I competing against? Like, uh, I didn't even know, am I competing if I don't even know I'm competing? So it was just kind of this like, um, weird thing. And then of course, later on, there was a lot of narrative about, you know, um, being a woman in that field and how women should stay at home and like cook. And like, I think the same guy said that it was obvious women should not be in the mountains because the harnesses are not made to go pee for women. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, stuff like that. I hear all the time, like it's quite amazing. And then more recently I was managing a few platforms, women only platforms, and that got a lot of reaction against these kind of platforms saying it was like stealing work from guides. It was uh, by giving it to just a percentage of the pop of the uh, guiding community, the women. So there was a lot, it, it's still like very tangible still very tangible actually when i was managing this platform and uh, this one guy told me that it was weakening women it was ruining society because it was uh, shaking the order of society and that you know a proof that this was ruining society is to see how when the taliban took back uh, afghanistan women found their place again in society so oh. these things are still being said <laughs> Like now, <laughs> not wow. 20 years ago, but like right now. So I think, yeah, it's uh, for sure. It's It's been quite hard. But at the same time, I really appreciate all the opportunities that, that being a woman in that field have provided. So when you decided to become a guide, um, tell me about that thought process. Did it just seem natural kind of stemming from maybe something you said earlier about taking people climbing early on when you were learning what what was the impetus to become a guide you know as a professional climber you can try to make a living in all sorts of different ways and that's just one of them um but it's been extremely successful for you so yeah what was the decision there i think it was kind of a natural next step i grew up in a village that had a lot of mountain guides so I, i'd always been confronted to them and I, for me i'd never identified them as being men it was just their guides 
And I never really thought, well, there's no female guys. There's not so many female guys. There was one of them, actually. Um, her name was, uh, is Nicole Nikki, and she was the first female guide in Switzerland. And for me, seeing that she had done it opened the door for any women to do it. Uh, also, my mom was very passionate about the mountains. And so she, she always made that narrative about women in the mountains natural. It's more when I entered that sphere that I realized it was very closed to women. Now it's like uh, 2023, the percentage of women in that field is still only 2%. So it's still very small. So I realized that narratives take a long time to come, but because to change. But because I had seen other women in that field, my mom and the women, Nicole, in the mountains, it just felt natural. So I just, I just went for it and did it. Didn't, I never really questioned it. Right. It was kind of a next natural path. I feel like guiding would give my passion purpose. And I feel mm -hmm. like it's really done that. It's been a good excuse and to go to the mountains. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's part of it too. But I've talked to so many people who either guided and, and burned out or are getting into it and they and it kind of made my eyebrows rise because it's not the whole like, oh, I want to be a guy because I get to climb all the time thing is like so so misguided. Cause, oh my God, is it yeah, ever? You, you ha there has to be this other, uh, you have to have a passion for wanting to, to help people, wanting to be with people, wanting to teach um, mm -hmm. it's not just about the climbing and, and nobody that goes into it for the climbing is ever lasts very long. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. For me, there is also a part of me because as a uh, woman, women are always going to be faced with that decision to become a mom or not. It's a decision that you're faced with no matter what, you know, you have like a bit of a time limit. So on that, and that time, it just happens to be when you're, um, uh, the most work proficiency too. So it's a bit of a conflict. And so I always thought if I become a guide, I'll be able to go in the mountains during the day and be home from family at night, which is kind of the case. It's what I do. But what I realize also is that being a mom, I'm giving a lot to my family, a lot of myself. Um, and when I'm guiding, I'm giving a ton of myself as well. So both of them are I mean, of course, when you give, you get back, but sometimes I need to resource myself too. And I also still do that by going to the mountains. So I'm in the mountains a lot. <laughs> yeah. In that yeah. sense. <laughs> and it's still a good excuse. I just need to go resource myself or I'm working in the mountains. And now with the, our daughter, we can go and share the mountains as well. So my life is, is pretty she? much all the mountains. She's 10 years old. She'll be 11 yes. actually in two weeks. Right. Yeah. So, you, you know, on another podcast, The Runout, we recently talked to Libby Sauter and she was talking about her, yeah, I mean, dealing with late in life pregnancy, um, the decisions that climbing women, outdoor women, professional, you know, climbers, professional guides are confronted with if they wait a long time to have a child. You know, she's having, she's in the late 30s, so uh, geriatric pregnancy as they mm -hmm. say which is pretty harsh but um yeah you know, having all these troubles yeah. <laughs> wording yeah. yeah so when when it came time um you know to have a kid and to have a family uh what was that decision process like because i mean you're right it's not only like your your work proficiency but you know it's your climbing life too those are those are your years when you're you know you're firing you're psyched you're you're 
doing trips and and Libby talked about that about how people just put it off and put it off because they feel like it'll just you know cramp their style or you know they have this few let things left to do that leads to this other few walls these other things so tell us about the decision to have a kid and and uh, have a family and and how you imagined it would fit into your life and how it's turned out to fit in so I think um, like I said you're educated with a narrative and I think the narrative, especially in Switzerland, is very strong that a woman will be a mom. And I think that narrative was really strong also coming from my parents, from my mom, maybe, that this was that my horizon went there. And, and so I, I feel like I lived a life, a very intense full life, um, because I thought when that would happen, my life would be over because I always saw women sacrificing, but also because of the narrative that it's selfish to keep doing what you want to do. And you should, uh, I guess the description that we see of women, uh, of moms is that they're completely sacrificial and they don't have life anymore. And they're there for their children, their husband. Um, so for me, that was very clear that that's where I was heading to that wall. Uh, and then I had a big year in 2011. I went to Antarctica for Eddie Bauer, came back, went to Thailand to shoot a movie, and then to Jordan to shoot a movie. Came back, climbed the north face of the Eiger in a day. Then I had quite a bit of work. And then, I don't know, like in April, like early May, I um, was climbing with Adam on the Grand Capucin, this big rock granite feature in Chamonix. And I just had this moment where I was like, I just want a child right now. And Adam was like, keep coiling the rope. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just like, there was nothing else, you know, like talk about a situation of like yin and yang, you know? Adam was like, oh my God, just focus on that goddamn rope and just get that thought out of your head. Um, and I'm pretty sure like that night I got pregnant. So that was pretty easy decision making. <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot going into it. Um, and then I was like, still happy to be pregnant. I was guiding at the same time, but um, that was quite challenging as well. But my doctor was wait, like wait. always supportive. Could I go back though? Did, did, uh, did Adam get any say in this whole thing? Uh, <laughs> you'll have to ask him. It sounds like, it sounds like, to the bed. Sounds like he was a little railroaded. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, goddamn, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, he was pretty much, uh, yeah, that's just how it worked. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, things worked out well. I mean, I had a really healthy pregnancy pregnancy for the I mean yeah I mean I was guiding and then then I was guiding these 4,000 meter peaks and kind of hemorrhaged a bit so then I I stopped um, working then and then I was ski touring until four o'clock in the afternoon and she was born at midnight so all in all it was pretty dreamy and I think that's where this narrative of having to become a mom is super validating because I grew up with that and then I made it I got there I had a child that was a mom. And so I was validated by society. Cause like, if you know how it is, like you get married and people are like, when you're having a child, I mean, it's just like, 
we're so drilled by these narratives of like uh, timelines. And so, and we feel validated when we achieve them. So, you know, and I couldn't be happier because I, I just love this. I love being a mom. And I think being, being a mom has really opened my eyes to the world in a ways that I don't think I could have seen the world the way I see it now without being a, a mom. Yeah, so it's, it's been a, an amazing journey. Then we talked about having another child and with our lifestyle, it's quite complicated. So we stayed uh, with one, but that was really hard for me because the narrative sits so strong that I felt like I needed to have another child. And it wasn't clear whether I wanted a child because society expected me to have a second one or because I really wanted one. And I think that's something that's hard to identify getting back to the essence of your needs or your wants and what is the driving force of the narrative. So not always easy to distinguish. So we have one child and she's 11 and she um, is very strong-minded. And I would say she has enabled me to see society for what I perceive it to be now as in seeing all the biases, all the discrepancies, all the narrative as to what girls should be or should not be. As an example, she was told by a teacher last year that she could not wear a crop top. And I know that's like a huge thing, this crop top thing. But uh, for me, it was like, well, if they have a school outfit, it's one thing. But if they don't, um, it's a different thing. And the teacher said, boys are crazy enough as it is, so you can't wear that. And how already at that early stage in their lives, they're being told, um, they're being told to carry the weights of a man's desire. And that was like, really like, whoa, what? <laughs> Coming from an authority. And I was like, no, 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 that doesn't work. Uh, it's for boys to be taught that a girl's body is out of reach without consent. And that, and for a girl to know that she can't hit a boy either, or like, Boy, girl, who cares? It's just like, as humans, we have to respect each other, no matter what the gender is. And um, so it's been it's been really eye opening to be a parent, and also really healing, because we were talking about eating disorders before, and it's really enabled me to see all that I've been taught to be, and that that had made me sick. You just told me that you had this concern that this would be, you know, I now am this vessel to raise my child and I don't get to do what I want anymore. And, and you know, and speaking of narratives, there, you know, more outside of climbing, but but I, I guess some somewhat from within climbing, this idea that you're risking your life, you, you, you shouldn't be out there risking your life because now you have a kid and uh, which is something, I mean, I just feel naturally I'll admit it's not just all society. It's I, I do have those thoughts that I wouldn't have had when I was 20 and single and, and without progeny. But but I think it's much heavier on women to to say that no you you need to tone it down now. You need to you need to maybe find something else to do. I don't know. Did how did your life look afterwards? Did it meet your expectations? Go beyond? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting what you're saying. I think uh, if you look back on history, men have always been. If you read history books, men are always like at war, fighting, and women are staying at home, raising children, taking care of the house. I mean, that's kind of like, even in school, that's what we're educated to read and 
to see and is validated in that way. For me, very quickly, I mean, you know, it's also for my well-being, I needed to go back to the mountains. I've never I had one accident in the mountains in 97 where I fell off a mountain. I didn't know much about mountains at the time. And since then, I've never had an accident. I had one small avalanche by level. Or not, it wasn't small, but it was by level zero. So it's not like I had taken intentional risks or anything. And as we know, most the way people die mostly is not from taking this big risk. It's more when it's less risky that things happen. Um, I think this concept of risk is really biased in the sense that for me, staying at home and doing nothing and cooking lunches every every day would be putting my mental health at risk. <laughs> and I find that really <laughs> risky and unhealthy for everyone. <laughs> and so I don't think we, we validate that that much. But, you know, like this whole narrative of, um, I think when Hillary passed away, what really stood out for me is this Hillary higher, Nelson, yeah. Yeah, Hillary Nelson. Mm -hmm. Is this hierarchy set by society of what is acceptable death. And I'd never really seen it that way. But so if you die in the mountains, it's unacceptable. You're selfish. If you die of cancer, it's acceptable. Um, it's sad for the kids, but, you know, it's what it is. But if you die, yeah. People feel entitled to judge. And I know some guy posted about it on, on Instagram saying, oh, you know, I'm trying not to be judgmental, but I think I'm being judgmental because she's a mom. And I was like, you need to try a lot fucking harder <laughs> to not be judgmental because there's nothing not judgmental about this comment. And so for sure, like I do not want to die in the mountains and I do not want, and I just don't want to die. I just want to be there for my daughter <laughs> and I want to live this life and I want to live it uh, with her and be there to answer all her questions. And I'm also aware that life is finite and I feel like people are suddenly are in denial or there is like this concept that because you become a parent, then you are not allowed to die anymore. And I think this narrative is super weird because that's the only thing we know is that we're going to die. And the only thing we know is we have no idea when it's going to happen. And I think as parents, the only choice that we have is like every day we live with our children, like to give them the tools so that they feel good when something happens, no matter what, whether it's like interactions in school or any kind of hardship that can happen, just so that they know that they can rely on themselves to figure it out because nobody's there forever and that's the the reality of it so to be prepared for what is i think is uh um is is the best that we can do as parents yeah it's you're spot on about the the two standards as well i mean i remember with allison hargreaves that was sort of this part of the the narrative and again probably more in mainstream media but this oh this mother she she'd been out there you know, risking her life. And my God, she's a mother, you know, like these breathless headlines about her being a mother. And, and mm -hmm. I, I a hundred percent do not hear that. Uh, when, when men are risking their lives or when a tragedy happens to a man, it may be a, it may be a note in, in the article somewhere, but mm -hmm. it's certainly not the headline, you know, that no, no, for father, sure, for sure. like left kids behind or whatever. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Uh, and, um, and I think that bias runs really deep. And I think that's why there's so few women in the mountains as a whole. 
because the judgment runs so strong that we don't want to be judged. So we just don't even take that first step, you know, um, or we feel like we're invading the space or, yeah. So I think that that really needs to change because I think women take less risk in society as a whole, not just in the mountains, but in the workplace or uh, taking risk to live the life that they want to live. And like, I, I, so I, I think this narrative runs not just about proper risk of life and death, but like also risking to live your dreams. Let's shift to your personal climbing. You know, again, the question I was asking earlier and we were discussing was this idea that, okay, having kids like it's going to shut me down or slow me down or anything else. And yet you've had these with an 11 year old or 10 year old, um, you've had these couple of great seasons. So uh, you mentioned this dreamline in Norway is the words you use. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's really important to have personal goals in life. And I think also for me, it's a uh, what I want to give my child, that she has dreams. And if she wants to be a mom, she can still live life and dream. You know, I think it's, uh, they say, be who you want your children to become. So I'm trying to live by that motto and we'll see if later in life she will reproach it to me. But most recently I went to Norway to do this climb uh, that I'd seen in 2016. And it's on the island of Senja in Northern Norway. And I'd seen this line, I was really sick at the time and conditions were not good for it, but I really wanted to go back. Since I work 100% as a guide and an athlete, um, I have a family and there's just not that much time, you know, you have to make money and like it's uh, there's only so much energy to go by. And, and then for ice climbing, the conditions are really fickle and also avalanche hazards and finding a partner and the free time. It's, it's so many, um, so many things that could just not work uh, that it's really hard to line it up. So this one guide lives up there in Sonia, his name is Beth and Every year I would bug him, like, is it in? Is the, is the route in? It's called Fincona. And every year he'd reply, yeah, it's still here. <laughs> but it's it's just really hard to commit to go live your dream. It takes a lot of, um, for me, vulnerability and courage because you could fail. It's time that you're taking away from your family. So I only do, like, shorter trips. Um, so I'm not away too long. And the stories lined up that I found a partner randomly the week before to go do this climb. I'd seen two weeks before that somebody had done it on Instagram, which I'd never seen before. Uh, anyone really do it. And this pepper had done it, um, had opened a route to the right of it like many years before. A team of Canadians had gone like many years before as well. And so it was just like, oh, I know the conditions there and I have a partner. The weather is good. I have these dates blocked and I just flew there and um, two days later we did this climb and it had just rain, which we didn't know. So it could have jeopardized the climb, but it's just high enough. And that route is so magical because it sits right above a fjord. So depending on how you look at it, it reflects itself into the fjord and the sun sets on it. So it has this golden light on the ice and you're just standing above the fjord. So it's just something just unique that you don't get to do all the time. And that really spoke to my heart and I think doing things that make you vibrate and achieving goals that you've set for yourself is like, I don't know, for me, it's just the essence of life. So it was a lot of hard work. 
um, we post their hips for like two hours to get to the base of climb. Uh, and we're able to do the climb. I got totally drenched. I'd never been this so cold. And there was this massive sunset. Because in March, Norway, the sun sets really slowly. It just set forever and ever and ever on this golden light. So it was like really all the more special. Um, also, two years ago, I lost my mom. And it was just, and I'd been to Norway with her. So it was like really important for me to go back uh, in memory of her. We had done a trip together to go see the Northern Lights, and it was really cloudy. So we didn't get to see them. And on that trip, I was able to see them. So it was for me, a way to reconnect. Also, there was multifaceted. Um, yeah, and then then you jetted off to. It sounds like you also did something rad in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't do something rad in Canada, uh, did I? Uh, I what, what did I do in Canada? Um, <laughs> I juggled a lot of conditions. It was it was really cool. So, like I said earlier, I, I'd gone there like in two thousand seven and oh, two thousand six, and did a big ice climbing there with uh, John Walsh. And uh, where we did so many routes, like link-ups of so many routes, two routes a day on the Stanley Headwall, which is like this really big feature, and put up a new route, and, and I'd never gone back. So it was my first time back to experience that area, and it was minus 30 degrees on some of the days, so it was super cold. But when you leave home and you're on a trip, you're going to do things like no matter what, you know, if you're at home, this minus 30, you're like, yeah, I'll wait a couple of weeks, then I'll go ice climbing. But when you're there, and it was really amazing because everybody rallied to go climbing. We had some white knuckle driving, and I broke a tool. I snapped the tool in half. So I had some epic moments. <laughs> so it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like I didn't climb anything that was, like, uh, completely different from the norm, but it was just, a trip for myself to go re- really re- reconnect to the essence of me. And now there's pretty much no ice in Switzerland at the moment. So, um, yeah, uh, now I'm, like, ready to just focus on work and not care. But I need my ice climbing fix every year. Yeah. Nice. What's your connection to rock climbing? <laughs> I'm scared of falling. <laughs> <laughs> Ever heard that before? <laughs> <laughs> Not from not from someone as accomplished as you are, or not as often anyway. But uh, yes, yeah. so, well, t- tell me about that then. <laughs> I'm doing Hazel Finley's course on uh, it's called uh, Strong Mind to work mm-hmm. on that. I think it's a really good point when you say that you haven't heard that from somebody um, who's in that field a lot. I think it's actually a lot more common than we think because as an alpinist, you can't fall tried climbing you can fall but you can kind of play scared if you're scared so you always have this kind of crutch it's really hard to step away from this mindset that you are blocked by something so it's my um it's most my most fascinating um part that i'm trying to learn to manage better and yeah it's it's a journey and i I really like it i've made a lot of progress this year towards that so but it for sure it's been a limiting factor and i think parenting has impacted that quite a bit because you have less time you try to be more efficient so you're more stressed so you're less focused and so it's just kind of this repetitive stress and so to really focus on one thing at a time and um, go to the gym and just fall and see the progress and not uh, be stressed about it so 
so yeah, no, it's 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 a, it's a bit of a journey. Nobody's ever spoken about this topic. What's that? Being afraid but, of falling. Yeah, fear of falling. Oh no, all, all the time, all the time. Okay, so. okay. But, I, yeah. but just like, and and I know this to be true that that the you know someone is accomplished as you are can can have that in your mind i do too i've admitted on the show i don't like to fall um Mm -hmm. i don't like to take big even big sport climbing whippers on overhanging ground you know where i know it's fine it's still Mm -hmm. i could still get gripped in the moment Mm -hmm. of truth we we just talked to hazel on the run out and um you know i told her some dumb story about how i was like had this climb that was scary and but it was safe but it was just scary and so i took i forced myself to take the fall that I was scared of, and then I was more scared of it. Um, so she, scold, she, she scolded me, thoroughly scolded me about my my terrible uh, approach to it. Um, <laughs> she's like, "That's not how it's done." <laughs> so, but yeah, Take my so course. yeah, <laughs> that's really right. Good. Yeah, yeah, no. So um, yeah. I had a really big accident in '97. I fell off a mountain. Yeah, um, okay, hold and on so a I think there's, so, there's something some fear linked to that. Yeah. Well, you, you've, you've had that in your email to me and then you've said it before you fell off a mountain. Uh, you're going to have to elaborate a little bit on the, a yeah. 1200 foot fall off of a mountain is like the most, the most like buried lead. <laughs> yeah, totally. Talk about falling, fear of falling. No. Um, yeah, it was like early days in, the my climbing, I was like based in Chamonix. I was going to college here and, um, I went on this ski tour with this guy and it's a ski tour that would circumnavigate Mont Blanc. And so we had like a really big day. The first day finished at 10 o'clock at night, left a bit late the next day from the hut to go to the summit. It was 97. I had uh, two meter long skis and leather boots and I'm five uh, 5'4". So really long. And uh, I was in Tellys and we skied from the summit. It's like, 50, 55 degrees, and um, a little slip slide came down and flipped me around, you know, like with tallies, you're facing the slope, and and then I just, like, went down uh, over this cliff, bam, I impacted twice on the way down and, like, shattered my ankle and my uh, sacred ilium and all my ribs, and I was in the hospital flat on my back for two months. And I think that was a really pivotal point in my passion for the mountain because in the hospital, that's all I thought about and read about. And, and yeah, it was like a total decisive factor to be to be in the mountains all the time. It was like a total trigger. Wow. Um, yeah. So, so uh, yeah. the other half would, would have hung it up, right? Another another person would have been like, I'm never going back up there again. So it's yeah. interesting that it, it inspired Maybe. you in a way. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of people, like, when they come uh, in close call with, I mean, I guess, death or with um, something that's a bit life-altering, mm-hmm. they actually, well, yeah, like you said, some people would go uh, turn their backs on it, and but I think a lot of people go full throttle into it. I don't know. It's like you just like, oh, my God, you got so close to the final sentence, and you just... You're not going back, you're not seeking it, but it's something that was like really powerful, maybe like jump-started you. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I actually was like a motocross kid, mm-hmm. and um, and right about the time I was getting into just backpacking, like outdoor stuff like that, 
Um, I crashed my motorcycle and ended up in the hospital for uh, over a month. And that was like, I can look at, I didn't know it at the time. I was only, I was only whatever, 12 or 13 or whatever you are when you're going into eighth grade. And, but that is like, now I know that was this, I made this weird choice there where I was like, no longer really going to be a motocross kid. And it wasn't because I was like afraid of it or anything, but I, I had just like dipped my toes into this, this world of just being outdoors more and like a more authentic way than I had been as a kid, you know, camping with your parents or whatever. And also I remember the, the, the guys that I had gone on these little backpacking trips with came and visited me in the hospital and, and nobody from my like motocross crew ever showed up. <laughs> and so it's like, I, and it just, I'm still friends with some of those guys to this day, like, you know, 40 years later, which is pretty wild, but it, you know, not as serious as what happened to you. Although in a way they, they were thinking about cutting my foot off. Um, cause it got so infected. I flew off my bike into this like stagnant pond and uh had torn the top of my foot off and ripped a tendon out and all this stuff and so anyway yeah so it's interesting because they that was the same thing is once i got out of there i was like all right well this looks cool and i'm going to pursue this and that really is a through line to climbing because once Mm -hmm. i got to colorado backpacking canoeing things like that was the most adventurous thing you could do in the midwest back then Mm -hmm. i mean there was there was climbing i didn't know about it but uh once i got to the mountains it was like okay climbing that's this walking around with a backpack on is I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to climb up this mountain instead, you know, with mm. a backpack on maybe, but, um, but yeah, so it's, it's kind of like a, a similar thing only I was much younger and again, maybe not quite as serious. Yeah. But it was like, a still an unconscious trigger yeah. of something that connected you to something that resonated with the essence of you that, you know, like with this community that came to see you and you're like, Oh, they see me, you know, and, and I kind of belong. And, and I think that's like a, a huge, uh, a huge driver, you know, and, and I think like, you know, the outdoors, like we saw that with COVID where suddenly the outdoors was taken away from everybody and everybody craved it. <laughs> when you can't have something, you crave it. But it, there is like, people ask me often, like, but why do you go to the mountains? Why do you seek there? And for me, I think it's where there is the essence of me without the noise of, of society. You know, it's like the essence. Sometimes I, I just need to go back there to see to see who I am or just speak to my soul or whatever you call it. But um, yeah, I think it's something really unique about that. There's something really powerful powerful about the outdoor community in that way. Did you get a better tally set up after that? <laughs> I went to Alpine, of course. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did telly for a couple of years after that. Okay. But yeah, no, 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 I don't. I, sometimes I think about going back, but yeah, no. Can't do you're, it all. You're, ta- you're, talking, you're still talking to a devotee. Um, oh, yeah? I, I, oh, I threaten every year to switch, to switch, but I kind of just never get around to it because it's what I know how to do. So um, Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, so I, would still, I, I would still do I, it. Yeah. It's just too much gear, like too many... Yeah, right. no, no, I don't. But I, I really loved it. I really loved it. And it was That's also awesome. a community because my brother was competing in telemarketing competitions. And and I w- he was five years older than me, so I was following in, in, in that as well. And so there was, yeah, I think it's also linked to that community. Yeah, of um, outdoor passionate, you know, like thrill seekers kind of thing. And, you know, like, I guess with my fear of falling, I wouldn't call myself a, a thrill seeker. <laughs> 
in that sense. And I, I don't think I'm a thrill seeker. I'm, I think I'm just a more, um, I'm a seeker of um, connectedness and like groundedness. And I think the mountains are really grounding in that way because you're always making like micro decisions at every moment to really focuses your brain and in the moment. And I think that's what clears your brain from mm -hmm. the, from the noise. I really like that. So I've talked to, um, you know, women climbers for years now on this thing. I've, I've, you know, actually really pushed for it in the last couple of years. And last year was almost 50% of the guests were women. And, and I'm always curious about, you know, again, these places in, in climbing where there's, there's sort of a box that you're put in or there. And I, and I ask women, you know, some, some women ask about that and they say, well, I don't think about it. I'm just a climber. And, mm -hmm. um, other women are like, well, my sort of activism is I'm just going to be really good at this. And, you know, that way, if some dude gives me shit, then I'll just like send his project in front of him and we'll be done with the conversation kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but then other women, uh, well, I'm not sure because then it gets downgraded. Yeah, right. All right, exactly. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, but if it's his project, then he's downgrading his own project. Yeah. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but then there's women, and plenty of them have been on the show that that you know become at or at least spend part of their time and energy being advocates, which it certainly seems like you are, and you have been for the last few years, um, at least. And uh, was that a decision that was natural? Have you always been like that? Was there a, a time and a place when you were comfortable enough to be like, I'm going to start doing these women's only platforms, doing these, you know, you, you gave me a list of these amazing all-female expeditions you've been doing. It, was it ever a conscious decision? Did you just grow into it? And um, what have been the sort of the good and the bad of it? It was never a clear intention at all. And sometimes I feel like I'm inhabited by this, like, a mission that I have no idea where it comes from. Like, I don't know. But I think, for me, I think everything goes back down to my daughter. Like I said, it's when I had her that I started seeing all these, all these discrepancies. And, and I, was, I really wondered why so few women were in leadership position in the workplace, why... You know, like the other day I was in the store and I was looking uh, for some gear for free writing for Olivia. And I tell the guy, um, I'm looking for some free, free writing stuff. So he takes me to this place and he's like, well, this is kind of a lighter green. So it's more girly. And I was like, oh, yeah, but it's for my daughter. And he said, no, you said free writing. And I said, yeah, for my daughter. And he's like, oh, oh my God, sorry. Like the bias. <laughs> He just assumed it was a boy because I said free riding. And I, I guide these children free ride groups. And the percentage is like one to 10, if there's even one. And so I saw all these things and I was just like, well, what, what does that look like for my daughter? You know, and I see all the advantages of being the only like very few women in that field as well. But uh, it's really nice when you can have uh, female friends or that you can share with and there's no it's more linear. I mean, for me also, I think what also triggered that is that Adam doesn't always appreciate if I'm going to go sleep in a hut with some dude to go do a climb or and create memories with some other dude or whatever, like depending on who it is. It's not that easy for him either. So I've had to create more of a female community for me to go in the mountains with. And it's been hard, I have to say. 
I've made some amazing connections, but there's still few and far between. And when I want to go do a hard ice climb or something, like it's it's still not so easy to find women who want to do it. So, yeah, I guess, you know, there's that word that's a, that sentence that says, like, be the change you want to see in the world. So you have to start with your own self to provide change. When women say, oh, I'm just a cl- women climber, I-, I can appreciate everybody can have their own opinion, but you have to see the numbers. And the numbers kind of speak for themselves. And yes, the door is open for women to go in the outdoors and invade the workplace and be leaders and stuff like that. And the question isn't that the door is open. The question is, why are, are they not stepping through? And I think that the nuance is there. When you have been excluded from a space intentionally or not, that the narrative excludes you, and then it says, oh, but now you can come, it's super vulnerable to make that first step into a space that you've been rejected from. I remember being in Boulder uh, once to take my first yoga class ever. I'd never taken a yoga class. And I'm sitting at the door and I'm like so embarrassed to step into that room because I know nothing about it. I don't belong to that community. And it feels really vulnerable to make the step. Once you're in, you can kind of adapt and it's still hard at first. And But making that first step, it's hard, even though you're not being rejected for my space of the yoga yoga um, workshop but if you know you're stepping into a space that you've been rejected from before or excluded from uh, it's really hard and so I'm just trying to change that narrative by creating awareness about the fact that there is a narrative or there was a very strong narrative the Swiss Alpine Club didn't accept females until the 80s the British Alpine Club didn't accept females I don't know until when, but they accepted dogs. <laughs> I mean, that speaks millions, right? You know, like the first female guide in Switzerland was in in the mid-80s. Same in France. Um, the French didn't allow that first female guide to enter the um, French Federation of Mountain Guides because they said no women is a, will ever be allowed, you know. So there's that's like not very long ago. All things considered, it's like 30 years ago. So over four years ago. So like things are, things are changing, but in the grand scheme of things, it's very slow. So yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to do that. So like in 2019, I took on um, the first female uh, expedition team in Switzerland. So we went to Kyrgyzstan. Uh, we did four summits and there were six girls and I was the guide uh, responsible of that. And it was in the middle of nowhere. And it was a really strong learning experience for me. Like it's quite hard to say yes or no or in this risky environment. And it was extremely enriching, but also very vulnerable because it just feels like if something happens, an accident happens to a female, the, the narrative will be a little bit more judgmental, a woman in the mountains, blah, blah, blah. So we had no accidents. So that was like really powerful for me. And then I took on a role as the technical coordinator for uh, a project created by Switzerland Tourism. They've done market studies that show that in the next five years, the outdoor space will be invaded <laughs> the wrong word, by women, that there's going to be an increase of 80 to 90% of females in that space. So they created a project to climb all the 4,000 meter peaks in Switzerland. There's 48 of them in six months. And at first I was like, well, 
there's no incentive for women to climb deep. So as all female teams, and actually what was really amazing to see is that at first very few women took part. And then as they saw other women taking part and saw it on Facebook and stuff, they, they got the ball rolling and it was like this snowball effect. And before the six months were over, all the 48,000 um, meter peaks in Switzerland got climbed by all female teams. There's over 700 participants from 20 different countries and zero accidents. So it was just uh, many, many of the summits got climbed multiple times as well. So uh, it was like a resounding success. And the next year they created another platform to set the longest, um, the largest all-female rope team on a 4,000 meter peak in the Alps. And there was women from, I don't know how many countries, but it was more about diversity than just uh, because, you know, there's a lot of white females that have access to the mountains, but then when we get into diversity and inclusivity, it's still a whole other spectrum of discrepancy. So, they tried to make it as inclusive and diverse. And again, we had 100% success. All the women summited, also no accidents. And that's always like a, a repetitive thing that uh, I just want to make sure that there's no accidents because, you know, I feel like we're going to be found out or something. And then we also took the first female guide in Switzerland, Nicole Niki. She um, had an accident as paraplegic. And so when I saw these projects, like the Peak Challenge, I thought she was kind of the instigator of this kind of concept of women in the outdoor space. So I asked her if she wanted to go on a 4,000-meter peak. 4,000-meter peak. So we organized to take her, and it was not going to be an all-female project, but because I was told, amongst other things, that us women had no chance to take her to the top, that's this year, then, again, we had to prove that we could... <laughs> So it's still like, uh, you know, these things still come out of people's mouths. Yeah, we got her to the top of this 4,000-meter peak that's here uh, on the picture, and um, that was one of the most impactful experiences of my life, to be able to give back to this woman who is like the true pioneer from my path. So it was cool to to do that. It was amazing. So it sounds like your daughter's... I have a question for you. I have a question for you. Why did you... What made you want to change the numbers of women appearing on your podcast? Um, it, it started with um, just like a lot of people in 2020 with, you know, the BLM protests. Some, it, I hadn't even really thought about my, my uh, diversity, whether it's racial diversity or, you know, men to women uh, diversity on the podcast. Because, you know, I'd spent at that time like eight or nine years just shooting from the hip like mm-hmm. this guy's available this person's here this woman's here because i was doing them all face to face to all the interviews um so i was this full-on just basically this you know kind of uh hunter like if i heard somebody was in rifle i'd be like let's do the show so I, it was never a conscious thing about who these people were it was more like where they were available and so look that like everybody in the industry looked at my numbers and everything else. And I was like, God, yeah, I've never had a black person on the show um, up to that point that it was obviously because it was again, climbing. There was like, you know, my ratio of men to women was super lopsided as well. Um, So yeah, it was just part of that, you know, just same thing. I think a lot of, you can be cynical about it or not, you know, that this thing finally made me think about it. But I think, 
in a lot of ways, that's what it was for. That's what the BLM protests were for. And, and so I figured, well, if I'm going to do it uh, any, any time, it's time to do it. And so, um, and then last year was just, I just noticed halfway through the year that I was pretty close. And so I kind of shot for it. And if, if I fudged the numbers, it was actually equal, but it was because there was like some multi-person shows and stuff. So, um, but yeah. And then, uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm with the Swiss on this one too. I think that it's this, it's this market, it's this thing that's happening. It's happening around us. It's accelerating here in the States. If you, again, if you just want to look at the industry numbers, I don't know where they, whose butt they pull these out of, but talking about gym climbing being at parity, uh, sport climbing being really close, bouldering being really close, some of these disciplines, and then, you know, other types of climbing a little bit further behind, but, but yeah, it's happening. So, you know, beyond the wave, why not? Beyond the why not, I would say that's you, you know, like your podcast quite famous and stuff. So I think you're like instigating change. You know, I think it's like, um, it's circular. Mm. By creating, by seeing it and making a change, you're triggering a change that goes beyond, you know. And uh, so I think it's uh, it's really cool that um, that you're do- that you're doing that, that you're facilitating that because uh, you are enabling women to live their dreams in a way, and therefore you're making them happier and healthier. And I think that's like, what else do you want to do in life? <laughs> well, I appreciate it. And it's partially, again, like the technology, since I've switched over to doing it occasionally in face-to-face, but also often on the computer, I have a lot more choice now um, than I did before. And I, I think people don't really realize, like, put that together because they, they don't understand that a guy doing something out of his basement you know, trying to do face-to-face interviews the way I was doing was really, really difficult. And, oh my God, yeah. And I, I had very little choice. It was just like, you are in front of me now, sir. Let's do a podcast. So um, now that I have this choice, then I can actually kind of figure out my numbers and, and fill my spaces that I've, I've been unable to fill um, mm-hmm. to a certain extent. So it's, it's a little bit easier, but it's also been a lot of fun. I mean, it's it's, you know... Uh, it's it's funny how I get in touch with, you know, to to kind of talk about what you you've been talking about this narrative. It's funny how I get in touch with a lot of women, super accomplished, by all means, you know, great great climbers, and they're I find them to be a little more taken aback that I'm getting in touch with them than than a lot of times men are, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's it you know like oh, what am I going to talk about like or why do you want me on your show and it's it's really like i'm i'm always just like no we have plenty don't trust me we have plenty to talk about this is going to be fine and and i get that from from men too but i i feel like it is a little bit more common with women this kind of imposter syndrome or whatever you want or whatever you want to call it where it's like well what do you want to talk to me about i'm like how about this 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 and this you know like there's so many things um so yeah it's it's so it's been a little bit of a, a learning you know, I've learned some stuff from it about the space as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like uh, there's a lot of um, for women. You know, like we're talking about making change and stuff. I think uh, a lot of women are also preventing change from happening because we're talking about fitting in and belonging, and one of the key aspects of that is loyalty. And so, because the, this whole community, outdoor communities mostly male dominated they don't want to rub feathers too much 
they just want to belong. And so they're trying to adapt and be loyal to people that will validate them. And I think that's a huge thing that is also impairing change from happening. And I think sometimes it's totally unconscious as well. Uh, where they feel like, oh, there's no need or feminist, blah, blah, blah. And I wish I hate that word. It's all about like having equal rights. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's, that's all, you know, it's like uh, equal opportunity and like being validated for where you're at, for who you are, basically. Your daughter's been a big part of this conversation. She sounds like she's a skier. Um, yeah. Does she, yeah. I mean, does, she have, <laughs> does she have alpine and climbing dreams as well? We did a, uh, an ice climbing trip with her last year, actually. It was really cool. She did amazing. It was, it was really cool. Like, it's probably the best beginner I've ever seen. So that was, like, really, really uh, impactful. I think because we're both quite strong personalities, she's also trying to find that space. And I have a lot of respect for that because I went through that. So I don't want to shape it for her. I want to hurt it. I just want her to understand what tools she can get to feel happy, to feel resourced. So if that comes from skiing or that comes from singing or that comes from whatever, I think what we need in life are tools to make us feel good. Uh, when we encounter hardship or when we just need, not even that, just like to keep her tanks full. And I think that's my goal in life, to be able to show her that, if I have one goal, yeah, it's just to show her how to fill those tanks, how she can see that she can do that for herself because no one can do it for you. And so, yeah, I, I hope that's what I'm teaching her. I hope. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Carolyn for connecting all the way from Switzerland. If you would like to correspond with Carolyn, get in touch, maybe have her guide you, you can find all of her information at intothemountains.com. That's her business website for guiding. She's also on the gram, of course, at Carolyn Ware George. That's W-A-R, George. Go find her. And I looked up the British Alpine Club's history of allowing women. They didn't for the longest time. In 1907, the women formed their own Alpine Club. And it wasn't until 1974 that they finally reluctantly voted to allow women. I say reluctantly because the vote lost the year before and only won by a very narrow margin in 1974. And the two Alpine Clubs were combined in 1975. Actually, a bunch of the women weren't happy with that and split they liked being all by themselves, actually, for obvious reasons. And if 1974 seems like ancient history to you, well, that's three years after I was born. And keep in mind that just because they voted to allow something like that in 1974, all those curmudgeons that voted against it, I'm sure, hung around for many, many years, expressing their discontent. Women in the mountains. My God, what have we come to? That's not British accent. That's just some guy. However, just keep it in mind. Things change slowly when there's huge traditions behind them. All right. You know what's changing? The damn weather. It's getting nice in Colorado finally, mostly. A few nice days. So I'm getting after it. I hope you are too. And don't forget to check your knots.
Lebowski. Uh, is that what this is a picture of? In a sense, yes. My art has been commended as being strongly vaginal, which bothers some men. The word itself makes some men uncomfortable. Vagina. Oh, yeah? <laughs> 